what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Alrighty, welcome to another episode of I Guess I'll Do It with Pat House. Today, I have one of my favorite comics, Emmy-nominated writer for Conan, New York Times bestseller, and our own podcast, The Jackie and Laurie Show. Today, I have Laurie Kilmartin. Laurie, thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Pat. No problem. Uh, We've crossed paths a couple times over the years, but not too often. I first met you at Helium in Philly, and you were pregnant that week. I remember that week. Wow, that was a while back when Helium booked me. Yeah, so uh, that was a while back. (laughs) And then um, I met you at Conan once because um, Tom Segura is very good to me. And the first time he did panel, he brought me with him to Conan. So I remember talking to you there. And then you came back to Philly like a year and a half ago, two years ago? I did, but that was against Helium's will because Team Coco was doing shows. And so they they put me at Helium, but Mark Grossman... Uh, is apparently not a fan, and I won't be back. Oh, well, the punchline, right? Oh, I'd love to work the punchline. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great club. See, well, I'll, I'll, I was going to get to this later, but uh, the San Fran punchline might be my favorite club in America, and the Philadelphia one is just wildly different. It's, it's still a good club, but it's wildly different. Does it have that intimacy of the beautiful pink? It, it, San Francisco feels like you're performing in pink pillows, and it, it does. Lovely. Uh, Tom Rhodes said performing at the San Fran Punchline is like still being in the womb. <laughs> it, is, it feels like it. <laughs> uh, no matter what comics I talk to at any level, whether they're features or headliners, like if you've done the San Fran Punchline, I've talked to a million comics who just say that club is absolutely one of the best. And I completely agree. Yeah, I hope it survives. I mean, I know Google bought the building that it, it leases and um, it was going to turn it into like a like a employee hangout area, which is so sickening. Uh and then, then there was like an outcry that led by Dave Chappelle, if I remember yes. correctly, and yep. the mayor of San Francisco gave it some sort of heritage position, but or or, or legacy or designation. But yeah, I, like, I don't know if that's going to help it through this stuff. Yeah, like the kind of like a historical marking where you can't touch the building kind of thing. Yeah, but it wasn't that strong. Where it's it's still up to Google, and you have to rely on their uh, their inner goodness, which is a huge huge problem. Uh, yeah. So on, on on this podcast, I love talking to comics about their early days and what got them into it. Now, did you start in San Fran? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm from Walnut Creek, which is um, on in the East Bay. It's about uh, 20, 20 to I guess traffic, uh, twenty to sixty minute drive <laughs> into San Francisco. It should be twenty minutes. Yeah, I, my stepsisters out there. I'm very familiar with the traffic and the uh, how a twenty minute ride can become ninety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're crossing bridges, and it's it, it can always be troublesome. Was your very first set at the Punchline there, or was it somewhere no. else in the area? No, 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 no. I don't think anyone's first set is at the punchline because it takes so long to get past there. Uh, it's That's probably your 10,000th set. Is at the uh, okay. See, and I, I know they don't really have an open mic there, but I didn't know if they did back then. I know they rely on the um, Sunday showcases, but I didn't know if they had like a regular open mic or did at one point where any jackass can go up. 
No, I don't remember that. Um, I remember it was a Sunday showcase. And when I was coming up, uh, this guy named Hutch was kind of in charge of everything. And the Sunday showcases were kind of dominated by like Johnny Steele and Warren Thomas and Matt Weinhold and Sue Murphy and all the, you know, all the like the local headliners that were like such killer acts. And then they, you know, throw up a couple people early on, but it really took a long time to get Hutch's approval. Um, and, uh, I started, my first set was at this place called Foo Bars in, uh, Pleasant Hill. And it's, I think it, 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 it turned into an evangelical church and then a Chinese restaurant. I don't know what the location is now. And as soon as COVID's over, I'm going to go back up to the Bay Area and just check out, just check everything out. I have to put my mother's ashes in the niche anyway. So, uh, once I get the chance, I'm going to go take a tour of, of everything. Cause I, I've become incredibly nostalgic since I've been trapped in my home and I just yeah. want to see all the old stuff again. Yeah. Long for anything else. So yeah. let's backtrack a second. What, um, what got you into it in the first place? Like what did you, what drew, drew you to comedy to even point you in that direction? I was a little bit lost at that time and um, was looking for something. I had initially wanted to be uh, an actress, an actor, and you're supposed to say actor, but I guess I'm used to saying actress or whatever. But that's that was sort of my uh, lifelong dream, and I pursued it by never acting. <laughs> okay, and it was just like a thing in my head, and because um, I was a competitive swimmer, I never got into the theater, you know click and and high school because they were sort of competing time so um it was just sort of a, a thing I wanted to do but but uh was afraid to try and um then I started going to see stand-up uh at that time in San Francisco there was this club called the other cafe and it was pretty famous it was in the hate and um it had uh the stage was next to a window and you just had people walking by constantly and like Paul a poundstone and uh, would just do and Kevin Meany would do like incredible crowd work with just San Franciscans. And this is like in the late eighties, early nineties. So it wasn't like tech people. It's, it was, you know, like real, like (laughs) it was like burnouts from the sixties and, there, you know, that were still lingering in the area and, um, not all burnouts, but, you know, people from that era more and, um, and they were, you know, always pretty fun or people staring at them, you know, people driving in from Walnut Creek and just, uh, looking around, you know, part of a tour group or something like that. Yeah. The window thing is bizarre. I remember the first time I did good nights in Raleigh. Um, it's in like a residential neighborhood and there's like a home across the street. So I'm on stage and there's kids on a play set. Just like and, and 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 I'm watching them. The crowd is watching me, but I'm watching these kids. <laughs> Hilarious. So did Good Nights move? Because I was there once with Tim Wilson, but I don't remember that. Did what did they change their location? No, I think it's still in the same that same old building. Okay. I guess um, I guess I don't remember. I'm almost that. certain it's still it's still in the same spot. Yeah. Uh, but I think Cap City is moving to a new spot because that club closed. And I think it's opening in a different part of North Austin, I think. Oh, I didn't know they were reopening. Yeah, I, I heard that was. Yeah, they are. But that that's a bummer that that closed because that was a that was one of my favorite clubs, too. That was always a good time that weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know what's weird? That club used to be, it was a laugh stop or laugh spot. There's like a little, there was a, a small chain in texas one of them was the last spot and then the other one was the last stop 
And uh, so I yeah, forget. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, and I don't know the yeah. difference either. <laughs> yeah, so one of them had like a location in Houston and Austin, and the other one just kind of glommed on to that other, it was, you know, relying on audience confusion <laughs> and would get people coming to their place. You know, I any club owners are geniuses in their own ways, right? But um, But when it was... Before Cap Siege took it over, the stage was in the opposite area. It, it, it what I, I guess what I'm saying is it was beautiful, uh, like an incredible uh, location, and then they kind of flipped it around uh, it, it, within the building, and it wasn't as to me it wasn't as good as the original. But you know what? Now that they're moving, uh, that's uh, hey, it's, it's a new opportunity to design a great, great location. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully, you know, there's a million Austin comics and they, uh, you know, we'll get first dibs at weeks, but hopefully, you know, I can get there eventually. We would yeah, both get sure. there. Is, so how did that, is it, oh, go ahead, know, no, go ahead. The, the same people behind it or did, did, is it like a Joe Rogan thing now or? I don't think it's a Joe Rogan thing. I think it's through, uh, I don't know if Helium bought it, but I think he, he might be partnering with the people that had it previously. I think there might oh. be like a small partnership there. I think. Then I'll never work it. I'm telling you. I'm, every uh. club that likes me is being bought by Mark Grossman. This is awful. <laughs> well, at least we have a punchline here. So you can absolutely, we we need you to come back to Philadelphia. Sure. Did you have good shows here? Do you, you like this city? Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, fair, fine. Uh, that's how. <laughs> That's, I'm sorry, that's how like I, depre- I'm, I'm depressed by the news that the uh, the empire is growing. The empire that <laughs> doesn't like me is growing. It's really sad. But well, uh, yeah, they were fine shows. Don't shoot the messenger. I apologize. I know. <laughs> so how did that very first set go? Did you Were you one of the people that had a very good first set? Because I was one of those lunatics. But then I ate shit for the next three months. But the first one was great. <laughs> yeah, first one was great. I think... Um, I think I think most working comics have a first great set, and exactly uh, that tends to be the case it, for a lot of people I've talked to. Yeah, because it sets up the uh, illusion in your head that you can do it, <laughs> yeah. and you need that uh, illusion, delusion to uh, continue on for the next five years of um, misery. Yes. So, I think if you bomb first time out, it's really hard to keep going unless you are so insane that you heard yourself kill, which, you know, we know comics that are like that now where they, they eat it and you're, you're like, wow, you're, you're, you haven't committed suicide yet. You're still standing here after what I just saw you do. And they are seem fine with themselves. So people hear laughs that aren't there. Isn't that uh, amazing? Like, I wonder, yeah. if that's a, I wonder if that's a genuine like disorder, like, I don't know, fucking not laughter syndrome. I have no idea what it would be called. It but, should be in the DSM manual for sure, um, because there's and it's a, a sometimes it's people that teach comedy that and it always surprises me. Um, what, you know, I, I mean, I don't like to be good. Everyone make a living, but it's it was there's a couple of people I'm thinking in my head. And I'm just I I'm shocked <laughs> that people take classes from them and whatever. No, I same same thing here. I know I know those kind of people too. Yeah, and uh, even some of my very good some friends way back in my early days would be like yeah that wasn't bad i'd be like fucking dude i would be miserable if i had that set (laughs) how are you even how are you even going to go to the bar to have one more i'd be in my car on the way home (laughs) yeah but you see for them it probably wasn't bad you know i mean they're what they think is a kill set might be six laughs total in a half hour so 
oh, that's not even fucking good. That's that, not even math. That's not even comedy math. <laughs> no, it's bad news. <laughs> so did you dive right in right away? Like after your first set, were you hooked and ready? Were you like sneaking out open mics anywhere you could? I was taking classes from this guy. Um, so, oh, no, you know what? I, I did it and then I maybe did it one or two more times and then I had a complete panic attack because the second time I did the same set and I bombed and I was like what the what I couldn't I couldn't understand it and um this stuff killed my first time (laughs) right so then I I kind of like took time off and I started uh, I took classes that's that's always like a solution (laughs) you know for some certain type and so I took uh classes from this guy named John Cantu who um was a bartender at the Holy City Zoo and he uh allegedly discovered Robin Williams, but he, they're both dead. So you can't confirm it. But, um, <laughs> too was also, he was like a, a, a porn star. And, um, one of the, like a, I think he was native American. So he had like a lot of unique things going on. And yeah. Was, like, like one of like 16 kids and stuff. And it's weird. He, he, he was a pretty good teacher and I never felt uncomfortable around him. And then the non-porn star I took a classroom uh, ended up <laughs> trying to fuck me. So, you know, you never know who's going to be uh, a terrible person. Oh, my God. I love that you can differentiate. Like, that's just so funny that you have the two different uh, mentors. There's yes. the there's the. <laughs> porn star well my non-porn star teacher told me this but my porn star teacher suggested i try this thing (laughs) yeah i mean we we would work out at the zoo in the afternoon like you know saturday or sunday afternoon and so you and the holy city zoo was notoriously pitch black when you walk in except for the stage light obviously just you couldn't see anything and it was so tiny and to to walk in from the direct sunlight of San Francisco, you know, in in uh, on Clement Street to go into this pitch blackness was um, so glamorous, you know. And then uh, and, and and then I think I was the only one of our class that kept doing stand up. But you know, you'd practice on the stage and perform for the other people that were in the class, and then. Uh, hopefully get used to it, but you don't get used to it. No, because you're trying to make your peers laugh, but everybody has their face in their notebook and you're all comics. So nobody gives a shit about anybody else on stage. Yeah. (laughs) Except they're not comics yet. It was a lot of, and this is like in 87, 88. So people weren't, you know, thinking, I don't know that anyone was thinking it was viable. I felt like everyone just thought it would sound like a fun class or something. And Uh And it wasn't like Comedy Central was on telling you, hey, you can make a living doing this. It was it, it was just sort of this weird thing that some people were trying. So it wasn't as jaded as I would think a comedy class would be now, you know? Yeah, with so many. I, I wouldn't even know what a comedy class like would be now. They'd probably just tell you to go on YouTube or something. Like, I don't even know what a comedy teacher would tell potential I, comics I now. Know, I know. Somebody said, can I can I you know, pair you up with this person. She wants to start comedy. I'm like, what the fuck? Pair um, up. <laughs> I, I mean, just like, you know, pick, pick my brain, that kind of a thing. And, uh, and I, I, I said, I don't know what I would say. I mean, the only thing I ever tell anyone with stand up is get more stage time because, um, you can't start doing the stuff you want to do till you're really, really comfortable on stage. And it just takes, it takes forever to get that kind of comfort level. And you can't do that now. And the people that are really successful right now are doing, you know, front facing videos on TikTok, And that's not, I don't know how to do that. I'm not interested in doing that. I just want to get back on stage. So. That makes two of us. That's why. 
Yes. Oh, I could not agree more. I just want to fucking do stand up on stage. Yeah. I mean, I like watching that stuff, but it's not, um, it's just not what I want to do. I, I like watching a lot of things that I don't want to learn to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, now, so you just mentioned a good point. You said it takes a long time to get that, you know, sense of comfort in comedy. When did you feel like you got comfortable? It was different levels. I felt very comfortable when I moved to New York City in the late 90s um, because I just worked a ton of road rooms. So I so I, I felt very comfortable in any road situation or one-nighter situation. And then when I got to New York, I was very uncomfortable <laughs> because uh, now you're it's New York City. There's short spots and the audiences are very different. And there, it, you know, it's like you didn't come to their hometown of, you know, Schittsburg, uh, you know, South Dakota, North Virginia, whatever, you know, like uh-huh. they came, they either live in New York or they came here and they're expecting a show. <laughs> and so they, their expectations are really different from a comic than, than somebody that just gets tickets to the local club in their neighborhood. And, uh, uh and plus just, city references are so different from suburban references and kind of like I, I there was always the assumption like for a suburban crowd because I'm a white female like oh we have a lot in common I was raised just like you were raised but I just went veered over to the side to do stand-up but there's a common language because we have we grew up the same and then when you're in the city, you don't have that common language with people. Everyone kind of grew up in it. If they grew up in New York City, they've had a wildly different experience than me, who grew up in Walnut Creek, California. And if they're visiting from someplace, I mean, maybe they're visiting from a suburb, so there's something there. But, you know, I, 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 how many times have you, if you've been up in, in New York, there's the audience, there's like a table from the Netherlands. Oh, <laughs> Just dude. like, what, who are you? And so, so learning to, and that never happened in say Savannah, Georgia, right. When I'm working in a comedy house theater, it was always people from down the street. So it, it's, it, it was a very different um, uh, way to perform. And it, and I wasn't good at it, uh, especially at first. So it took a really long time to get used to performing in New York. Um, so that was a separate version of, a comfort level on stage that I had to learn after learning how to be a road comic. How long were you in New York for? Um, 10 years. And I go back. I mean, I haven't, um, you know, everything, everything I say is, you know, forget pre, this last year. Pre-COVID, yeah. Yeah, but I, I go back, say, once a month and uh, and do spots and stuff. I did it for a year but I didn't even like I'm 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 from Philly started here still here I did mm-hmm. uh New York in 2011 but I didn't even try like I cuz I wasn't getting on anywhere yeah. um I was already like featuring at a handful of clubs so like I'm not known by any means but I'm already I'm getting paid work consistently yeah. and I'm at these open mics that are at four o'clock in the afternoon and I could mm-hmm. easily make a phone call to friends in Philly or Jersey or even like Baltimore and be like, hey, anything this weekend? And be like, yeah, cool. Well, I'm going to leave town to go get real stage time. <laughs> so I didn't yeah. utilize New York at all. Yeah, I, um, I, I stopped doing road work. And maybe because I didn't have any resources on the East Coast. If I had had that, maybe I would have taken, taken that option. But all of my stuff was like... Uh, 
in the, in the Northeast and the West. So, um, I was like all in, in New York city and I started, I had a day job, the, you know, like the first time in 12 years. And I was like, I'm just going to do spots every night and embed myself and make myself a New York comic. Um, Oh, hold on. I just, I just had a thought and I completely lost it. Hold mm-hmm. on. Well, you just talking about New York. Oh, there we go. What was your day job? Whew. Oh, I uh, was a web. I, I did. I coded uh, HTML for uh, websites and uh, a little, a little bit of JavaScript and some CSS. If anyone out there knows what the fuck I'm talking about, I do not. But I really wanted to know what you did because I'm always because I. Um, I bartend and wait tables, but like, I still love it. Like I like where I work. I like who I work with. They accommodate me. So like, it's not an issue with comedy at all. I could be like, Hey, I have to to take a week off. And they're like, okay, no problem. So it's like, I got a good thing going. So why, you know, leave it. I worked at this place called CMP media. I think they're out of business or they were bought. I'm pretty sure they were bought, but they had a bunch of like business websites, like computer or internet related websites that were, pretty popular at that time. Um, and so I had to make sure that all the sites looked good on all possible browsers. So we're like, okay. and we were, this is like, we're, you know, we're even checking Netscape. <laughs> it's like Netscape Explorer. There's this little browser called Opera that only like five uh, programmers on earth ever used. And I was like, Oh, it looks bad on opera on windows. Fix it. <laughs> so there's a lot of that stuff. Um, and so I, I, I was able to do some road work with it cause I would bring my little, um, MacBook with me, but it was, it was, uh, it was mostly an in-office job. Okay. Um, now did you do any TV writing when you were in New York? Yeah, I wrote for my first writing job was a uh, tough crowd, which oh. was, uh, the show on Comedy Central with Colin Quinn. Oh my God, it's one of my favorite shows of all time. And I was obsessed yeah. with it when I was, um, when Tough Crowd was on Comedy Central, I was just starting to do stand up, but I was like, I was like fucking obsessed. I loved stand ups. I'd watch it every night. Oh yeah. And I remember you were on an episode. Well, I've seen you a bunch of times on it, but you were on one with Louis. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Patrice and Greg. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Unfortunate. Yeah, right. Uh, Who else? I think the, the other person on that show was, uh, Greg Fitzsimmons. I was. Oh, I. I I was like, oh, we're the two survivors of this foursome. Yeah, really. Did you like working there? Was that fun? Yeah, it was terrifying because it was my first job, and I had like classic imposter syndrome. I thought I was going to be fired at any moment, and it was that. That is highly stressful, but I think you 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 can't escape that. That's that'll always be your your first job feeling I, I'm sure especially Absol- comedy writing you know yeah I just I just picture that job being awesome because like like I said like I loved that show that was when I was really learning a lot about stand-up and I knew pretty much all the comics on it and it's just all of you guys sitting around bullshitting and I was like that looks like the fucking funnest thing in the world yeah it was it the shows were really fun I mean it was hard to write for because most of the comics didn't want any material from you which is fine uh we sort of wrote the act threes which were sort of sketchy things after two there'd be two segments of conversation and then some some kind of sketch thing and then the act four was like a comic summary um Mm -hmm. so so myself and the other writers kind of focused on the act three stuff so it was a lot of like you know trying stuff and it's not working or not getting on. It wasn't, it's not like, like I would think with like something like the daily show, you like every writer's probably getting four or five jokes on because it's so, it's so written and you know, tough crowd was so non-written that. Yeah. More conversational and 
Yeah. In addition to like having the imposter syndrome of I'm not a comedy writer, it's, it barely used any comedy writing. (laughs) So that, that made me more insane. You know, I didn't realize some shows are just unstructured that way. And others, I mean, enjoy it while you have it, because when you're on a show that's highly structured, you're, you're churning out stuff nonstop and they both pay the same. (laughs) Did you, (laughs) did you prefer to write or did you, did you like being on the panel more or were they both? Oh, I loved both. I mean, um, the writing was just the whole, you know, it was, I felt like, oh, this is such a better day job than web coding, (laughs) you know, because to me, it's always been um, a a way to stay in comedy while I still did stand up, you know? Um, And and after I had a kid, it was like, oh, this is, this is how I'll do it. This is how I'll raise a son. Um, But uh, at that time, I, I don't know, I guess, you know, it's so hard to make a living as a road comic. Yeah. And it's a really hard life. And I had done it for like 10 years um, because I had barely anything to pay. Like I had roommates, so my expenses were really low. But at some point you're like, do I, do I want to just keep existing on, you know, 2500 a month? before you know and and I and you still have to pay taxes like you you just get exhausted and and you know again this is when when I when I was sort of um uh maybe switching over to writing as thinking well this will be my income my prime income um it it didn't road work didn't pay much and I wasn't famous and I didn't know if I was gonna get famous like even when you start you're like oh I'm gonna be famous Right. Yeah. Everybody then, has that. Everybody has that thought. Every single yes, one of us. Yes. And then at some point you're like, it hasn't happened yet. Hmm. Yeah. You're 17 uh, years in sitting in a fucking Hampton Inn. Yeah. Like, and, it, it, and you know, so you do have to go, well, what's, um, you know, how long can I keep doing this where I'm, I'm, you know, barely putting away any money or saving anything versus, oh, there's this opportunity. I'm still a part of comedy. And and the thing about Tough Crowd is that, that I was working with the stand-ups that I wanted to hang out with. That was so, that was like the thing that made me go, oh, maybe I could try it. Um, I was never, I never thought, oh, I'll submit to The Daily Show. It just, it felt like such a writer's, a comedy writer's place and it wasn't a stand-up place. I felt like a dirty road comic all the time. And it <laughs> seemed like, seemed like comedy writers were like, oh, they were, you know, they were, they were born at Harvard and they, you know, they went to, to preschool there and they're just so much smarter than me. And I'm this fucking road whore. So uh, I, I never put myself in their category, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the comedy structure. But when Tough Crowd started, it was like, oh, that's Keith Robinson and Rich Voss and Patrice and, and Greg and, um, you know, not that I knew those guys very well, but I'm like, oh, they're, I'm sort of dirty like they are. And so I felt like I could fit in a little bit more, I guess. And then once I got in to comedy writing, I'm like, oh, everyone's a little different and it's not exactly what I thought it was. And, you know, my experience counts in a different way than somebody who, you know, spent their childhood writing sketches, which I didn't do and still don't do. It makes two of us. I pretty much have all my eggs in the stand up basket and I have this whole entire time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's where they are. So yeah, right, right, right. So were you getting on stage every night in New York? Were you, were you one of those comics who was like seven sets a night every night? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Loved it. I was exhausted, but it's just me. 
And um, I had a car and I lived uh, uh, at the time on 152nd. Uh, and so it wasn't too hard to find parking up there at night. So I would, you know, go to do tough crowd was like 10 to five, maybe five thirty. you know, go home, uh, change, whatever. And then, uh, you know, take the car, drive it downtown and be down for the night. Um, I was hosting at the cellar, you know, a lot. So I was, you know, and if Artie Fuqua was last, I wouldn't get, uh, I wouldn't <laughs> be able to leave till like 2.30 in the morning because he would always go on. So, yeah, I mean, I was exhausted, but I was like, this is heaven. I loved it. Oh, and, it's um, so fun when you get to, yeah. when you're in that spot. The cellar, I've never performed there, but when I lived in um, New York for that year, I hung out there the most and it was just it wasn't even the fact that I got to like say hi to my favorite comics every night. It was the fact that I got to watch them every yeah. night. And yeah. then like, I'm a big Dave Attell fan yeah. and Attell would just, there were so many times where he would do a different 20 every fucking night. He was just throwing shit to the wind. And I'm like, wow. I'm, I'm useless. I'm not funny. How does he have a different 20 than last night? And he might not love it all. I may not, not have loved it all, but he's doing a new 20 that he did not do last night. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. He's, he's the, the greatest, you know, what can you do? Don't, you cannot compare yourself to Dave Attell. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware. <laughs> it just, it just seeing, you know, these comics night after night, like opened my mind to how other people work and how they operate. And yeah. then like, I would see, let's say I saw a comic at the cellar during the week. And then I caught them in Philly on the weekend. Like, what, like I could see how they like intertwined it, how they worked on it. Like it was cool to piece the whole thing together, oh, seeing sure, them right. do a headlining set as opposed to like a city set. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm a big, f- I, I loved your books. I love dead people suck and shitty mom. Oh, and thanks. You're co- oh no, th- thank you. They're, they're awesome. Um, and you're constantly, constantly churning out hilarious tweets. Um, what is your writing process? What you don't a fucking pointless, li- pointless life to be churning out tweets. You know? No, like, but they're, f- every single one is funny. <laughs> thanks. They're not, but thank you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, at least a book, it's like hardbound. Someone can get it. Like I, I regret all the energy I put into Twitter, but I can't seem to stop it. <laughs> Did you always want to write a book? No. Um, uh, that that sort of, um, do you know Dan Dion? He's at a 800 pound gorilla. He's, a, um, yeah, we met in Nashville. Yeah. 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 He's in Nashville now. Yeah. So yeah. he, he's friends with somebody who was my agent for a little while, or he connected me with her. They needed a ghostwriter really quickly for a book. And, um, and I said, Oh, sure. I could do it. Cause I had, I would, I had, ri- I had had a website. Um, um, I had had my own website since like, like 96, I think. And so for a long time, I would write a weekly I guess it would be called a blog now, but that wasn't a word that back then it was sort of yeah. like what my week was like, uh, you know, and I was on the road so much, it was almost always road stories and stuff. And, uh, and so Dan kind of was like, well, she, you know, she can write, I know that. So, uh, that's how I got introduced to, to this lady. And, um, I got hired to write Sherry Shepherd's and I just ran into Sherry Shepherd last week and it was so funny. Oh. Her, her, uh, memoir. And then after that, um, this agent then connected me to these uh, two ladies or three ladies that had come up with a title for a book, but they didn't have any book. And the title was <laughs> Shitty Mom. And um, I was like, oh, I think I know what this is. And so 
so they were, they wanted to have me punch stuff up, but I, I said, I'll, I'll write it, but I'm not going to punch anyone's stuff up because they weren't comedy writers at all. Um, they were like news writers. So I just said, just, you know, uh, I'd rather do it myself and they were okay with that. So that's how that one came around. And then, um, dead people suck was, um, I just pitched it to the publisher of shitty mom as, Hey, it's, this is, it would be the shitty mom of grief. And so it's going to be a bunch of, you know, you know, 40 or 50, you know, 800 word chapters with a lot of jokes that just pinpoint very specific parts of, you know, hospice and cancer and um, dying and funerals and, and grief and all that. Um, and hopefully it'd be really funny. Well, it is. Thanks. And then, and then you have the album that kind of coincides with it too. Yeah, I in fact uh the the album was a special I recorded and I couldn't sell it. No one was interested in it. And so um so then I I was like, "Well, fuck it, I'll write a book." And I had a bunch of different stuff anyway that worked better as as prose as opposed to being in a nightclub, you know. Yes. Um so uh so I so I wrote the book and then uh in the meantime, CISO uh bought the special. So uh, it was available, and then it, you know the album's still available, but the special has has extra stuff like hospice footage, which you wouldn't expect in a comedy special, but it sort of works the way they um, Chris Italia um, from the stand uh, produced that part of it, and they sort of they sort of um, mingled it with the material kind of nicely. I mean, very nicely. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we're still trying to figure out where to put it now because uh, we got the rights back to it. But, um, you know. What is your writing process like for stand-up? Are you one of those people that wakes up in the morning and first thing you do, you die for the notebook? Or do you have to go about your day first till something happens? Or um, I would say writing it at before I'm going to do a set. You know, maybe I, I think a step in the shower, you know, and yeah. uh, or if I'm you know, doing something physical, if I'm swimming or something, I, I, sometimes a bit will come to my head, but I, um, I, it's so weird that, you know, when I write monologue jokes for Conan, it's very structured. Like we, you know, again, yeah. pre, pre this, but you know, X amount of jokes are due at this time. And, and so you just kind of write them and that's not how I approach my own act at all. I wish I did because I would have a ton more jokes, but I just don't. And, uh, just, you know, I'm, uh, you, uh, I, I don't know how much comics can make themselves a different kind of worker than they are, you know? Yeah. I mean, sometimes the, the reason your act is original is because you aren't sitting down like a monkey every single day typing, right? Sometimes the reason it's super original and come and, and pertinent to you is that you write it in your own weird way, which might not be the jerry seinfeld you know mold but it's your way so i don't know yeah no you can always tell when a comic is like robotic like like i i would it would always bother me when i could tell a comic like typed their thing out and then read, <laughs> read it and then read it like a word document like i don't care if you type your jokes out that's fine you do whatever you have to do but don't read it like you're reading me a document yeah, it's weird because I there's a something I'm thinking of specifically who's who writes great stuff. It's original, but it does feel very much like I sat down from ten to two today and, yes. and wrote it. Verse and even though it's great stuff, versus people where I you can see like 
somehow they they figured out a way to make the space in their brain for that weird thought to come out. And that was the work. It's not the sitting open, opening the word doc. That was the work in it, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. which sounds like a very lazy way to do it. But I, I think I, I, all I've noticed is that how I write for my own act is super different than how I write for a TV show. And so I'm doing both versions of it, you know. Do you have a notebook or do you type stuff out? I have a notebook. Yeah, uh-huh. I type stuff out. Sometimes I try to like at the end of a notebook, you know, circle around and like type out some ideas on some just giant document that's like 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and so that maybe I can go through it later, but I'm, you know, I don't know. It's it, stand up. I know. Well, <laughs> it's it it, it it it's so it's so it's so unstructured and you know, it's weird. Like sometimes you get in a mode where like, Oh, I'm going to do this thing every single day. And then you do it for a week and then you never do it again. <laughs> yep. And you know, if you did it every single day, you'd be much further along. Yeah. It's, it's, we're kind of our own worst enemies when it comes to that too. Like I can't even count the times I've even told myself I was going to read Julia Cameron's the artist way and got like one chapter in and then I shelved it for eight months and then <laughs> read the same first chapter again. And then like, or I'm going to do her, what'd she say? Uh, morning pages. You write three pages a day. The first yeah. thing you wake up right. that lasted like a week. Haven't done that in like two years. I still write every day, but I just, that's not what works for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, I write a journal every day too. And I used to do it a lot in the morning, but you know, my life changed and I can't, I can't take a half hour in the morning when I have a job and a, and a kid and a dog and I, I can't do it. I can't be waking up at five 30 in the morning to fucking write in a journal. Exactly. So, okay. I, you know, you, you got to scoot it in when you can, I guess, you know, it depends what your life's like. You no. know, she was a morning person and that worked for her and that's great. But she also, I don't think had a day job. So morning for her might've been 10 AM when she woke up. Right. She yeah. was, you wake so. up hungover whenever you feel like it. And then you write some bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Now, you did a USO tour, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. How, how was that? I, I was so, um, I don't know. When I was getting into stand up, I know a couple of comics that I liked were, were doing those, and they looked like the coolest thing. It was for the troops. You know, you're bringing stand up overseas. Like, I don't know. It seemed like a really cool thing. How was it? Well, I did a couple of them. Um, one of them is buried. Like, in fact, it was how, how I met Colin. Quinn is, uh, we did a show at Guantanamo Bay (laughs) and, um, you know, for tortures basically. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but uh, they seemed nice at the time when we were meeting them, but who the fuck knows what they were doing to people. Um, yeah. So, so that aired on Comedy Central and then they, they, after all the stuff came out about Gitmo, they really, they pushed, they made it go away. Um, it, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Cause I was hanging out with fun comics. And then, um, I did a show with, uh, Jim Norton and or a tour with Jim Norton and Colin Quinn, um, uh, 2004, we were in Iraq and, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a great experience, you know, and you, you, um, uh, you get, you know, it's, it's doing like these ad hoc shows on picnic tables and, um, you know, the, the, sometimes they're not the greatest crowd because they're, 
they're stressed or they're on high alert. Yeah, I can imagine the crowds are a little bit different than when they walk into a, you know, an improv. (laughs) And it's, it's mostly male and it's a little more female now, but it's still mostly male. Um, so that's, that's, and young male, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, so, you know, that, that changes some of the jokes you're going to (laughs) do. Uh, but but now it's all, actually it, it is a lot more female now, and um, uh, I forgot why I went to Qatar with with uh, or Gutter with uh, with Conan um, a couple years ago, and it was very it was high, it was a highly you know it was like sixty forty maybe men to women. Um, oh wow! Yeah, but it was that was like a, a a very nice base. It wasn't in wartime. And it, during Iraq, we were there during a war, and it was it was mostly male. And one time we had we landed, I think it was to Crete, um, and uh, the the audience had been awake for twenty four hours straight. But they were so excited to see this show, they I stayed d- up another hour. You know, it was like wow. 24 hours awake is ideal peak time to focus on oh. people talking. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. 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 I, I remember years ago and like, I'm embarrassed by it now, but I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I was just a host. I had, you know, realistically I'm doing 15 on stage, but I probably have a good yeah. 20 to 25 I'm working with. And I knew David tell did a lot of those USO um, shows. So I was hosting for him and I asked him how to get on him. And it's like, what the fuck would I have done? my 15 minutes. Like I had no act. Like I'm, I'm, th- I'm four years in what makes me think I could possibly go overseas and entertain the troops. But that's a real thought I had and I threw it out there. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you do feel like, uh, I was way per- too, I was way too uh, much of a novice to even think I could like, I mean, now I've, I've headlined, I have a couple albums. I like, but I, I, I had nothing. I don't know what made me think I could have done it. You know, oh, well, what makes you think you could do anything? Yeah. You know? um, I, I do feel like the, the, what people, how people talk about comedy now, especially now saying it's so important for people to laugh. Like, you know, uh, it, it actually, those shows feel like that description when you're in a wartime setting, like they're so fucking thrilled you're there. Um, no one's thrilled you're at the funny bone. You know, (laughs) in fact, they feel harangued into attending your show, but they're, they are literally thrilled when you come visit their base that's under constant attack. So in that sense, it, it, it feels like how people uh, tend to describe comedy um, when they're talking about it in these uh, ridiculous, you know, praising ways. It seems like such a cool opportunity, man. Like it's, just seems like, I don't know, like you said, you were on picnic tables. Like, well, that shit just seems so cool to me. It's so bare bones. But you said not every show is good, but you're standing on a pickup table under a tent next to like a rocket ship. And that just sounds like something really fucking badass that people would appreciate, you know? Yeah. That's- although the the funniest, the funniest thing that's ever happened is one time I was during the first Gulf War, I was in uh, Kuwait with um, Daryl Lennox, who I think lives in Canada now. He's a super funny guy. And we were on a picnic table. It was during the day. It was in Bahrain. This, we were mostly during in Kuwait, but this was a little excursion to Bahrain. And at the time, Bahrain was the only place in the Middle East where you could drink. And so the troops were hammered. And it was <laughs> noon. Like, and they were dicks. They were, they were assholes. And so we're, we're, we, all of us, there's like five of us, we're each getting heckled to pieces. Oh, my God. This, picnic table by these fucking asshole drunk troops. 
And then Daryl Lennox, of course, has been watching this whole thing and he gets up and he starts talking and somebody, and I can't, this is the, this is the couplet I have in my head where some troop couldn't take it anymore. And he starts, he yells at Daryl, what do you have that I don't have? Like something like I'm funnier than you. But he said, what do you have that I don't have? And Daryl said, a round trip ticket. And uh, we screamed. (laughs) The comics were like, fuck yeah. (laughs) And then we realized, oh, these troops are going to kill us. We just sort of, just more meekly, uh, you know, trying to stay away from them for the rest of the show. But it felt like such a victory. And and, and, And not a victory like how people talk about shows for the troops. They're so appreciative. They usually are, but these guys were fucking drunk dicks and they weren't. Okay, well, I'm glad you told me about the other side of the coin then. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, thank you so much for being here. I love just like, you know, um, we're not out doing it the way we should be. So this podcast was a way for me to have, you know, some green room chat with my favorite comics. So I appreciate you being here. Is there anything you want to plug for my dozen listeners? Um, I, I, Jackie and Lori show is me and Jackie. Yep. If you like comedy talk, Jackie and I, that's all we talk about. We don't have guests. It's just us talking about uh, our previous week and then it devolves into other shit too. Oh, she's so awesome. I featured yeah. for her for her a couple times over the years. Yeah, she's great. Wow. Yeah. So listen to that. That's about it, I guess. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I Thanks hope so much, we, uh, no problem. Hope we cross paths uh, eventually when all this bullshit's over. Yeah, me too. All right, cool. Laurie Kilmartin, thank you for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.